welcome you uh, to Severn and to the seventh and final week of our series from the book of Jonah that we've called The Prodigal Prophet. Uh, just to recap here, if you're hopping in cold, uh, Jonah is the story of a man who was commissioned to preach to a place called Nineveh. And after a whole lot of detours, uh, he went ahead and got there. And when he got there, uh, he preached. And in hearing him preach, the city of Nineveh um, repented in one of the most pronounced and miraculous ways that you're going to find in all of Scripture. There was this massive cultural transformation And of course, with that, you would expect Jonah to be ecstatic, but instead he was actually made miserable uh, to the point that he didn't even want to live any longer in light of the response of these people. And of course, that raises the question, uh, what's going on with Jonah? And really, that's the question that we focused on, or at least started focusing on, seven days ago. And we talked about how Jonah had a divided heart, and we talked about really what a divided heart is, and then lastly, how you can heal a divided heart. Um, but today, um, what I want to do is get, go a little bit deeper, and instead of just focusing on what was wrong with Jonah, uh, I want to really look at the root cause of everything that was wrong with Jonah. And it, it really all boils down to one thing, and I think you'll see it uh, as I state this and then read through it. Everything in Jonah's life uh, is stemming from the reality that he simply does not understand God's love. And so what I want to do is um, read chapter 4 again. It's only 11 verses. And, and having said that, I, I think you'll see um, where I'm coming from. Jonah chapter 4 verse 1 says, But Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you're a merciful and compassionate God slow to become angry, rich in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. Now, Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. The Lord asked, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah left the city and sat down east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up to provide shade over Jonah's head to ease his discomfort. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down so much on Jonah's head that he almost fainted, and he wanted to die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. Then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, he replied, it is right. I'm angry enough to die. So the Lord said, you cared about the plant, which you didn't labor over and didn't grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. Should I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right hand and their left, as well as many animals? This is God's word. Um, What you're seeing here, there's a a subtle irony to chapter 4, because at the beginning, what Jonah's basically saying to God is, God, I don't understand your love. Uh, The people of Nineveh, this city, is so wicked, it's caused so many people so much pain, and you're just going to sit here and give them a second chance. You're just going to sit here and extend grace to them and mercy and forgiveness to people like that. Jonah's saying, I just don't understand that kind of love. But then at the end of chapter 4, God kind of turns the tables on Jonah and and he says, essentially, Jonah, I don't understand your kind of love either because you're sitting here caring about plants. Meanwhile, God says, I care about people. 
So what you're seeing in chapter 4, and we did not plan this, this is not like a Valentine's Day message, but what you're seeing here is that Jonah chapter 4 is all about love. And everything that's gone wrong in Jonah's life, I mean really the root cause of all of his troubles, all of his struggles, and even his, his kind of emotional spiritual breakdown here, all of it stems from the fact that he simply has failed to understand God's love. And, uh, and my idea, my theory this week, like it's been all through this series, is that you and I are no different than Jonah. And that if we got honest with ourselves, most, if not all, of our struggles are in some way tied to our failure, just like Jonah, our failure to understand God's love. And so the question that I want to speak to today is very simply, what is God's love like? And I just want to ask you to take a second here and ask yourself How would you respond if somebody asked you that question? What is God's love like? Uh, First and foremost, if if you and I are going to understand what God's love is like, uh, we need to have at least a cursory understanding of what God himself is like. So let me just, over the next two minutes or so, explain to you what God God is like. Scripture is clear. um, Over and over again, one thing that it reminds us of about God is that God is transcendent. This is actually something that God has been showing me recently in my personal time with him. Now, what I mean when I say that God is transcendent uh, is that God is consistently bigger than we imagine him to be. God consistently uh, goes beyond the boundaries that we try to place around him. He's always breaking out of the categories and the boxes that we try to put him in. Right, as long as people have been around, people have been trying to figure God out. And that's obviously a very good thing. Getting to know God is a very good thing. But one of the things that we all do, nobody has to teach us to do this, just all of us do this in some way, is we all tend to emphasize the parts of God that we really like and we can easily understand. And then with that, we tend to de-emphasize the aspects of God we don't particularly like and we have a lot of trouble understanding and what that amounts to is, is we wind up trying to create God in our image, forgetting that he has actually created us in his. And so God being a transcendent God means that he's always going to blow up the boxes and the categories that we try to put him in. Now that, admittedly, is a bit of an abstract concept. So, so let me just give you one clear picture of how we see that in Scripture. Uh, at the beginning of John's Gospel, chapter 1, I believe it's verse 14, we're told that Jesus... This is probably a phrase you've heard before. Jesus was full of grace and truth. Jesus was full of grace and truth. Uh, That's a phrase that that is is fairly common. Uh, I just think that we have so normalized that that we fail to understand how totally mind-boggling that is. Because what Scripture is saying about Jesus is not that he's a perfect balance of truth and grace, like he's half and half. It says that he is full of grace. Of both. He is the full measure of grace while at the same time being the full measure of truth. And if I can just be really candid with you, that doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, Because if somebody, on the one hand, is full of grace, what that means is that they they are perfect at meeting people where they are at accepting people as they are, regardless of what sin is is in their past or even in their present. Uh, You know, if a person's full of grace, it means that even the most openly broken people you know, the social pariahs that, that everyone else looks down on because they've kind of cast off social norms. It means that, that, that even those people would not only be comfortable around you, but they would be kind of drawn to you. And that's exactly what you see about Jesus in the gospel accounts, that the most openly broken people actually liked breaking bread with Jesus because he was full of grace. 
But to be full of truth means that at the same time, you never dumb down the standard for anybody. Being full of truth means you, ne- you absolutely never cower away from telling somebody what they need to hear and showing them what they need to see. Being full of truth means you unfailingly tell people how they have failed to live up, how they have fallen short of the standard, how they are in dire need of repentance. You never come at that sideways. You always hit that head on. And so when I think about someone being full of grace while at the same time being full of truth, to me that just doesn't make any sense because there's no human being in existence that is like that. Every one of us errs to one extreme or the other. Jesus didn't. Jesus was the full measure of both. That's what it means to be transcendent. God himself is transcendent. And and I say all this to say that because God is transcendent, so also his love is transcendent. I think a helpful image when you're talking about God's love, you could say that God's love is like a fire. Because a fire on the one hand is, you could say a fire is embracing. You know, it's inviting, uh, it's comforting because it provides warmth. Uh, But at the same time, a fire, while it is embracing and comforting, a fire is also refining and it can be incredibly painful as it purifies. And essentially, Jonah's breakdown in chapter 4 boils down to the fact that he did not understand this about God's love. He didn't understand that God's love, like God, is a category-breaking love. That at the same time, God's love is wonderful because it provides warmth, while at the same time, God's love can be incredibly painful as it purifies. And so my goal today is to sort of look at both of these aspects of God's love as they're shown to us in Jonah chapter 4 so that we can understand what Jonah never understood in this story and hopefully become what Jonah never becomes in this story. So with that, I only have two ideas for you, but with that we're going to get to our first idea during our time together. It's this, number one, God's love is an embracing love. Now this is the aspect of God's love that I think You know, when people say, well, God is love, you know, especially in our culture, this is the aspect of God's love that people almost universally tend to get in our culture. Uh, And you see this really from two different angles. You see God demonstrate this to Jonah and then to Nineveh. But first, we're going to look at God demonstrating this to Jonah. Twice in this story, we read it on the front end, Jonah says the same phrase. He says, it's better for me to die than to live. Uh, And twice in this story, God had absolutely every right to say, all right, Jonah, your wish is my command. Because if I can just recap what's gone on in this story, God has already been unbelievably patient toward Jonah. Uh, I mean, at the very beginning of the story, Jonah runs out on God, and God could have just let him go, but instead he sends a storm to get Jonah's attention. Uh, He he gives Jonah a three-night stay in the belly of a fish uh, to sort of straighten him out. And then, I don't think we talk about this enough, then not only does God allow him to get, you know, spit back up on dry land and get another shot at doing what God's called him to do with his life, but in preaching to, jo- in, in preaching to Nineveh, I think you could make a case that Jonah is used more powerfully than any other prophet or preacher in the entire word of God. Because what Jonah does in chapter 3 is he half-heartedly delivers this eight-word sermon, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown, and in response to that sermon, which I'm going to guess he didn't probably work on a whole lot beforehand, 120,000 people turn around on a dime. And in response to that, Jonah is here wallowing in self-pity. And so when Jonah says, it's better for me to die, part of me expects God to say, how about that, Jonah? We, fi- we finally agree on something. And there ends Jonah's life, 
you know, put a period at the end of the sentence and we'll move on to the next verse in the Bible. But that's not what you see here. Instead, what God does, just to surprise us one more time, is he takes on the role, he, he sounds like a cosmic counselor. And he comes to Jonah, and, he, and he's, he, you know, he's eye level with Jonah, and he's so compassionate with Jonah. And twice he asks, asks Jonah, he says, is it, is it right for you to be angry? And I, I just, I hope you, you can see as clearly as this passage is meant to get it across, the unfathomable long-suffering in God's posture toward his prodigal prophet. Uh, the irony, of course, here is that God is giving to Jonah the very thing that Jonah did not want God to give to Nineveh, which is patience and mercy and, and, and forgiveness. I mean, here, what you're seeing is Jonah's behavior, of course, merits God's rejection, but God refuses to give that to Jonah. He refuses to give Jonah what Jonah deserved, just like he refused to give Nineveh what they deserved. And so here's kind of an uncomfortable question that this passage would have you and I ask ourselves. I'm sure this is going to hit hit on for somebody, do you have people in your life right now that are breaking all of the rules that you've tried so hard to keep, meanwhile they seem to be having a better life than you, an easier time in life than you, and and you're kind of telling yourself, you know, God's not giving them what, what they deserve and they haven't worked nearly as hard as I have. They don't, you know, their, their family is 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 just a lot better. They have healthier relationships than mine. And he hasn't tried to be the husband or the father that I have. He's done everything wrong. I've tried to do everything right. You can apply that in any area of life. I think most of us can think of somebody or some situation when we go down that road long enough. What this passage is getting across is the idea that we should never ask why God is dealing with anybody else the way he happens to be dealing with them. Because the plain fact of the matter is God does not deal with anybody the way that we deserve. If God dealt with any of us the way that we deserved, none of us would be left. And, and so the idea here is, is, is God is trying to get Jonah to this place where he recognizes, God's saying, Jonah, you need to recognize that I love you despite your pride, despite your self-centeredness, which is no different than the violence of Nineveh. And so, Jonah, the only thing for you to do is humble yourself. You'd be a lot happier if you did. All right, it, the other way that this passage gets across uh, the, the, the all-embracing love of God is, is found in the final verses where God uses this illustration of the vine. In verses 10 and 11, it says, So the Lord said, You cared about the plant which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and it perished in a night. Should I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals? Now, what God's saying to Jonah here is, hey, you care about this vine. Meanwhile, you were only sitting under that vine so you could have a, 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 a front row seat to me destroying 120,000 people while you cheer from the sidelines. This word care here, it's, it's, uh, the Hebrew word is a lot stronger than the English version gets it across. When God says you cared about the plant, but I care about these people, the Hebrew word that's used here, it actually means to grieve or, or to mourn over something. This verse is, 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 is an unequivocal reminder that God grieves over lost people. He, God himself mourns over people who are on a, a path to perishing without him. And what we're seeing here is that it's a real problem in a child of God's life when that stops bothering us. When we stop grieving over that, when, when we stop mourning over that. And so basically what God is saying to Jonah and, and what he's saying to all of us through Jonah is he's saying, 
look at what you weep over. And then look at what I weep over. God's saying, he's saying, look at what you love. And just for a moment here, compare that to what I love. See, the, the problem here with Jonah is, is and, and it's the problem of, of all of us. I don't know who can say that they're not exempt from this. God is saying, your love is inward. You're always weeping over yourself. You're always weeping over your own problems, your own troubles, your own issues, your own whatever it is. You're so wrapped around the axle with self-absorption. You don't even have time to think about the problems and the burdens and the lostness of the people that are placed around you. That's the fundamental problem in Jonah's life in this story. It's the fundamental problem in my life. I think it's the fundamental problem in, in all of our lives. And what God is trying to get us to see here is that his love is outward, meaning God's love flows to the unfamiliar. It flows to the undeserving. And if it didn't operate that way, then it certainly would have never flowed to people like you and me. And so what God's challenging us to do here is what Jonah never does here, which is to humble ourselves, recognize that all of God's mercy toward us has been completely undeserved, and to allow his outward-facing love to transform our love into an outward-facing love so that we can get to the point where we do what Jonah never does here, which is to just get over ourselves and to begin to weep and to mourn over the problems of somebody else, the baggage of somebody else, people who don't have homes, people who don't have food, people who, worse yet, don't even have God. Because if Jonah would have done that, if he just would have humbled himself, he'd have been a whole lot happier. And so the first idea here is that God's love is an embracing love. I just I want to pause here and point out something that I think needs to be pointed out. Nothing that I've said up to this point, I don't think at least, has been very... Uh, you know, insightful or particularly revelatory because what I've just shared with you is no longer even a uniquely Christian idea. I mean, certainly throughout history, there were civilizations where if you said, hey, we should love and serve other people that aren't like us, that would be very foreign to them. But our culture, uh, whether we realize it or not, has been so shaped by a Judeo-Christian ethic for so long that, that even people who don't even believe that God exists, recognize the value of loving and serving others. You can get this in pop culture. You can get this from your therapist. You can even get this in, in popular self-help books. I don't know if you've ever heard of an author named Simon Sinek, uh, who's written a number of, of uh, really helpful books. One of them is called Leaders Eat Last. And in Leaders Eat Last, he's explaining how basically modern science has caught up to this idea that when we live in other-facing life instead of a self-centered life, uh, biologically it's better for us. When we do things for other people, turns out it actually releases something called serotonin in our brains, which chemically boosts our mood. So I think most people would agree with this idea that if we would just get over ourselves and live more for other people, it would be a, a, a generally better life for us, which is a fine thing to say. The problem is it's not that easy to just decide to do that. What we're seeing in Jonah's life, and, and this is something that the Bible reminds us of in, in the heart of people generally, is that we are so naturally self-centered. The human heart is so naturally curved in on itself that we can't simply decide to get over ourselves and live for other people. And so that brings us to our second, and it's going to be our last idea today. Number two, it's that God's love, while it is first an embracing love, God's love is also a refining love. I want to read uh, verses 6 through 8. It says, Then the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew to provide shade over Jonah's head to ease his discomfort. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant, 
And when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down so much on Jonah's head that he almost fainted, and he wanted to die. Um, this teaching was actually you know, pretty difficult for me, for me to put together. And, and when I first was thinking through it, I first had this idea of God's refining love second. I, I actually wound up kind of retooling this whole teaching on Thursday, which is uncomfortably late for me. But the reason I wanted to put this idea second uh, is because if we are ever going to be, if we're ever going to be the, the, the kind of people, if we're going to be changed into people who extend the embracing love of God into other people's lives, then we need to be people who understand the refining love of God in our own. More simply stated, if we want to become what Jonah never becomes here, then we need to learn what Jonah never learns here. And what he never really grasped is this idea that God's love is a refining love. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that everybody listening to this wants God's love in their life. I don't know anybody that would say, you know, hard pass on God's love. Um, But scripture reminds us that if God's love rests on you, the one thing it'll never do is leave you alone. Uh, And the reason for that is because God's love, just like a fire, is not going to give you warmth and light without also burning some stuff up. And we see that in this story uh, with, with this word appointed that shows up three times. First, we're told that God appointed a comfort. It's the vine that provided the shade in this 110, 120 degree heat. But then right after that, it says that God appointed an agricultural disaster, this worm. And then after that, he, he appointed a devastating weather pattern. That's this scorching east wind. And that's brought an incredible amount of misery to Jonah's life to the point that he almost fainted and he actually wanted to die. And the most important thing to see here is that these two things God appointed, this worm and this weather, Scripture does not say they just appeared. It says they were appointed by God. Now, we're going to talk about why God did that and, and, and what the lesson was that, that God was trying to teach Jonah. But what I want to focus on here is not first, is not so much the point of the lesson as the method of it. What this passage is showing us is that whether we like it or not, and, and what I'm about to say I don't think is something you've never heard before. I just think it's something that, that we understand intellectually and it's about it. Like we, we can get this answer right on a test, but then we lose our minds when it becomes a part of our lived experience. What this passage is showing us is that God will absolutely appoint troubles, discomforts, and disasters in our lives as a way of purifying us. Now, you, you probably heard me say this before, but God did not design the world as we experience it now. I think that's an important thing to understand. God did not originally design a world filled with loss and sadness and death and decay and suffering and all that kind of stuff. The reason for everything that we hate about this world is because our decision to put ourselves in the place of God. When people do that, nothing good ever happens. So the world as it is today is the result of our sin. But the Bible tells us that when God puts his love on you, what God essentially does is he places a hedge around you. And all that means is that God then monitors the flow of the pain and the trouble that enters your life. There's a lot of verses I could point to that, that uh, speak to this idea. I think the most obvious one is Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 tells us that God is going to cause all things, not just the good things, but even the bad things, 
in the lives of his children to work together for their good. Now what that means is that God is so sovereign over the nature of the pain and the trouble that enters the lives of his children, uh, he's so sovereign over the nature of it that such, of it, uh, uh, such that all of it is eventually going to work out for your good. Meaning, among other things, nothing you go through will be wasted. And I don't know why that, that particular thought meant so much to me this week, but I just want you to consider for a moment here that in Jesus... The promise that you have is nothing that God leads you through throughout your entire life is for nothing. Meaning everything that you experience in your life between this moment and the day that you stand before God, all of it is somehow going to contribute to this ultimate good that God has planned for you in Jesus. I just want to ask you, how's that for an amazing idea? Now that raises the question, if you think like me, how on earth is God, is, is God going to do that? I don't have the slightest idea. And I would not believe anybody who said they did have the slightest idea. But that's a promise that God made us in Scripture. And so what that means now, in the here and now, is that all of the trouble and the pain that enters our lives, it's not random, it's not chaotic, it is according to his appointment. That's what you're seeing in Jonah. That God appointed the vine, then he appointed the worm, and then he appointed the wind, and he appoints these things out of his love. Now, I think that's a hard thing for some of us to understand. So if I can just give you two really quick analogies. Uh, years ago, I was at a house party, and uh, a good friend of mine had way too much to drink uh, in order to be driving. And so me and a couple other people had this brilliant idea that we were going to disable his engine. Uh, my friend, my inebriated friend, caught wind of that idea. And this might shock you, but he was not thrilled about it. And he didn't thank us for it. And he wasn't on his hands and knees, you know, weeping at the love of his friends. He actually wanted to fight us, which was a problem because he was actually a pretty big guy. The point is, we were willing to make him unhappy in the here and now if it meant saving his life down the road. Uh, a lighter example of, of, of an illustration like that is, is parenting, which I think is an appropriate example because I've heard it said that children are basically tiny drunk people. And as a father of four, I would say, yep, that's accurate. Any good parent is willing to constantly disappoint their children, to constantly dis uh, uh, frustrate their children, to constantly uh, forfeit their child's immediate approval and even maybe sabotage their happiness in order to develop them into the person that they need to be down the road. Any good parent's willing to do that. And I just want to tell you, God is a far better parent than any of us. And so he's willing to do that for all of us. And so what God does for all of us is the same thing that he does for Jonah in this story, meaning he wrecks our vines. Now we talked about this a little bit last week. The human heart looks to something the way that Jonah Look to his vines, meaning all of us look to something for our, for, for, you know, to, to give us comfort. All of us look uh, for something to uh, protect us, to shield us, you know, all that kind of stuff. Basically, our, our vines are just the things that we look to, to be and do what only God can be and do for us. Uh, as I was thinking about this, I, I couldn't help but find it, it intriguing that you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and when Adam and Eve sinned and they first experienced this horrible thing that the human heart now knows uh, called shame, the very first thing Adam and Eve did was they reached for vines to try to cover themselves, to try to compensate for what they now knew was wrong with them. Um, and, and, and the truth is we've been reaching for vines ever since. Every human heart looks for vines 
to try to shelter us, to try to pr- protect us, to try to comfort us, to try to keep us safe. The problem with that, of course, is that there's nothing in this life that can give us the comfort and the protection and the security that our hearts so desperately need. And so what God does is he allows our vines to be destroyed, and if necessary, he allows us to experience a great deal of pain. And so this image here that you're seeing in Jonah 4 is actually an invitation I'll just make this personal. This image here in Jonah 4 is an invitation for you to really consider the pressure points in your life right now. For you to really examine the greatest sources of your pain right now. You know, the things that God's maybe led you through in the past or is leading you through right now that has you wondering why. You know, why am I having all this difficulty personally? relationally, physically, financially, whatever it is, this passage is an invitation for you to consider whether or not the pain in your life is actually the presence of God's purifying love in your life. And you might be really angry about it. But maybe it's that, that painful purification that, that years down the road you're going to be able to see in hindsight you would have been lost without I just want to stop here and, and play devil's advocate to, to my own idea here. If you're listening to this and you're not going through a great deal of suffering, that might be immediately helpful to you. But I know that there's people listening to this who are going through a great deal of suffering right now. Suffering that, that I, I, I don't know anything about. And if you hear this idea, you know, God can use that to develop you, that can sound a lot like a platitude. And, and so maybe there's somebody listening to this right now and saying, hey, that's great, but I don't want to be developed that bad. And whatever God might develop me into is not worth the pain that I'm experiencing right now. If that's where you're coming from, I, I just want to respectfully offer you an idea, and that's all I'm trying to do here is offer you an idea. I actually do think you want to be developed that bad. And I, I actually do believe that it's worth whatever God has to lead any of us through to get there. It's my conviction especially after the last eight years or so of really meeting with people one-on-one and, and certainly when I look in my own life, is that all of us want to be the people that God desires us to be. Meaning, every single one of us wants to be a person of strength, of integrity, of courage, of kindness, of generosity, of faithfulness. We, every single one of us wants to be a person that has a kind of meaning in life that suffering can't take away. We, we want to be people that have access to a satisfaction that doesn't depend on circumstances. We want to be people that are so solidly rooted in our identity that nothing that happens to us can cause us to question who we are anymore. And we all want to be people that have a kind of love and a kind of joy that makes us no longer captive to the ebbs and flows of this life. I mean, I don't have to know who you are to know you want to be a person who is humble and yet confident at the same time, you know, a person who's not constantly crumbling over the criticism that we're all offered on this side of eternity. The good news is God wants us to be those kinds of people too. The news that I I think we're not as excited about, but it's actually even better news is that God wants us to be those kinds of people even more than we want to be those kinds of people. And what God is saying in this, in this story, this episode of Jonah's life, he's saying, if you want to be a person like that, I'm going to have to deal with you like this. I'm going to have to tear up your vines. And you're going to have to get burnt at least a few more times so that you can finally learn to find shelter in me. And the hope that we have is when we get to the end of our road and we stand before him and we step into glory, we will know then that if God had dealt with us in any other way, we wouldn't have made it. 
I don't know anybody who put this idea better than Charles Spurgeon. This is a long quote. Uh, I want to read the entire thing to you because of how helpful this quote has been in my life. He said, Believer, if your inheritance be a lowly one, you should be satisfied with your earthly portion. For you may rest assured that it is the fittest for you. Unerring wisdom ordained your lot and selected for you the safest and best condition. A ship of large tonnage is to be brought up the river. Now in one part of the stream there's a sandbank. Should someone ask, why does the captain steer through the deep part of the channel and deviate so much from a straight line? His answer would be, because I should not get my vessel into harbor at all if I did not keep to the deep channel. Then Spurgeon said this, so it may be you would run aground and suffer shipwreck if your divine captain did not steer you into the depths of affliction where waves of trouble follow each other in quick succession. Some plants die if they have too much sunshine. It may be that you are planted where you get but little. You are put there by the loving husbandman. Because only in that situation will you bring forth fruit unto perfection. Remember this. Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. You are placed by God in the most suitable circumstances. And if you had the choosing of your lot, you would soon cry, Lord, choose my inheritance for me. For by my self-will, I am pierced through with many sorrows. Be content with such things as you have, since the Lord has ordered all things for your good. Take up your own daily cross. It is the burden best suited for your shoulder and will prove most effective to make you perfect in every good word and work to the glory of God. Down, busy self, and proud impatience. It is not for you to choose, but for the Lord of love. The only question that that leaves us with is, is what do you do with this idea? Um, And I, I can offer you at least two things. Number one, whoever you are, whatever you're going through, you should assume that God is dealing with vines in at least some area of your life. Um, but number two, I, I just want to recognize that that's really not good enough in and of itself. You might be hearing this and you're thinking, hey, I understand, I understand that intellectually, but my heart hasn't caught up to my mind. And I don't know, I don't know how, to, how to obey God and to trust God with all of the things that he's leading me through right now. I understand it on paper. I could get it right on a test, but my heart hasn't caught up to my head. So what am I supposed to do? For anybody on the other side of a screen that's thinking that right now, I would just offer you Jesus. Uh, I don't know what else I can offer you. I don't know that I'll ever be able to offer anything other than that. Um, what, what you and I have to do throughout our lives is learn to look at Jesus on the cross. It's interesting that in, in uh, the letter known as 1 Corinthians, Paul referred to the cross as the wisdom of God. And that's exactly what the cross is. When we see Jesus hanging on the cross, what we're seeing is the answer to the question that the entire Old Testament leaves us asking. The Old Testament ends with us wondering, how can God be loving without compromising his holiness? How can he be holy without compromising his love? 
And how is God going to deal with this thing called sin without utterly destroying the people that, number one, are the cause of it and are so intimately caught up in it? The, the cross is the singular answer to that question. The cross is basically the resolution to every plot line in human history, all summed up in one singular event. The cross is the manifold wisdom of God. But let me just ask you, let me just ask you this. Do you think that the first followers of Jesus who were able to see the cross with their own two eyes, do you think they saw the cross then for what we're now able to see it for today in hindsight? And the answer is, of course not. The first followers of Jesus, when they saw the mutilated body of their rabbi hanging on a Roman cross, not a single one of them said, this is, this is perfect, this is amazing, this is the wisdom of God. Everything's going according to plan. This is going to lead to the salvation of countless souls. Praise God. Not a single one of them responded that way. Because what they were seeing did not fit into their tiny, infinitely small understanding of what their God was capable of. And so every single one of them turned their back on the greatest display of grace and mercy and love and wisdom because what they're seeing didn't fit into their infinitely shallow understanding of, of what God does and how God operates. And so if that was true of them, here's the question that this should lead you and I to. If they were so prone to misunderstanding the work of God after over three years of personally walking with the Son of God, I just want to ask you, is there any chance that you right now are misunderstanding the work of God in your life? Is there any chance that right now the manifold wisdom of God is at work powerfully in your life and, and you just don't see it because it's confounding you like it has always conf confounded people in the here and in the now? If I can, uh, if I can share a, a story with you. Um, when I was getting ready to leave the fire department, uh, my tonsils were giving me trouble. And so I wanted to get that surgery knocked out while I still had the greatest insurance package in the world. And, and I remember the day that I went to Annapolis to get my tonsillectomy, uh, you know, everybody's a gangster until it's time to go under the knife. And I remember they put me in a room and they had me in this gown and I was not an inspiring picture of strength and confidence at the time. I was nervous, I was cold, my skin was splotchy, I, I felt like, you know, I was cosmically isolated in the world, and a, um, a woman came into the room that I was sitting in, and she hit me in the hand with an IV, and, uh, and as she pushed the medi medication, she said, this is going to feel like you just drank a bottle of wine, is what she said to me. And so I looked at her, and I said, how about you just give me the bottle of wine? And she kind of chuckled, and she let me sit there for a few minutes, <clears throat> and, uh, and I stood up, and she led me into the operating room and the table that I was going to lay on. And, and so I, as I was walking, as I was approaching the, the door, I said, hey, I don't think this med medication is working. And she just kind of looked at me and chuckled, and she said, oh, I think it's working. And so they led me into this room. This is exactly like a movie. They led me into this room. They laid me on the table, and this is the last memory I have. I was laying on my back, and I could see all these heads over top of me, just like in the movies. And the, the last memory I have was they picked up my left arm, which I was not capable of picking up anymore, and they put a, like a lead on one of my ribs, and I, I giggled really loudly. They, this is ex exactly what I did. I went, whoo, -hoo -hoo -hoo. that's exactly what I did. And I remember all of these heads over top of me, you know, laughing at me, and that was the last thing I remembered. And I woke up, and thankfully my tonsils haven't given me any problems anymore because they're no longer attached to my person anymore. But I tell that story to say this. Imagine if I'd gone into that operating room 
And I refused that medication in my hand. And I said, uh, excuse me, doctor, you're going to open up every one of your drawers and you're going to show me every instrument in this room. And I need to know right now what every one of these instruments is called, how every one of these instruments is designed to be used, how you plan to use it on me and why. And we're not moving forward until you explain absolutely everything on the front end. I'll just tell you what would happen. You know what would happen. If I said that to my surgeon, he would say, listen, if you can't accept your role as my patient, I can't accept the role as your surgeon. So what's it going to be? Are you going to trust that I know what I'm doing or not? And I I tell that story, I think the application is clear. There comes a time in every one of our lives when we simply need to trust that God is a cosmically qualified surgeon and he's capable of performing surgery on your and my souls. There comes a time when we simply have to trust him. And we grow in that trust by looking at what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. And we look at how Jesus had everything lined up against him. He had the hatred of man. He had, he had the forces of hell. He had the wrath of his own father. And Jesus bore up under all of that. And he did that simply for us. And he comes to us now and Jesus is simply saying, that's really all I ask of you. Just do for me what I've already done for you. It, Jesus suffered to lose his glory as, as, as followers of Jesus, we just suffer to lose our idols, the things that are ruining our lives anyway. Jesus went to the cross and suffered to lose a relationship with his Father. We suffer in Jesus just to get even more near to the Father. And so Jesus said, would you just trust me? He says, would you just trust me? And when we make the decision to trust Jesus, what we're essentially doing is we're promising first and foremost to stop getting bitter at the fact that Jesus does not give us the life that we think was the best case scenario for us. We trust that he knows better and he loves us. But secondly to that, we also, we promise to maintain this posture as we move through life where I look at me with with a question asking, okay, what does God want to do through me? Instead of me looking at God like plankton looking at a whale and saying, here's what I want to change about you, God. And when we decide to trust Jesus like that, Over and over again, we see this in Scripture. When we decide to trust Jesus like that, we come to know the greatest truth in the universe, namely, that Jesus really can be trusted like that. Now, we've arrived at the final thing that I want to point out about this book, uh, and it's actually the strangest thing about this book. It's the way that it ends. I mean, all, all through this book, what you've seen is that God commissions Jonah, and Jonah fails, and God reinstates him, and he fails again. God reinstates him again. Here we are at the end of the book, and, and, and God is essentially asking Jonah this final question. He's saying, Jonah, do you get it now? Can you just accept that, that the reason for your misery is that your life has really primarily been about you, that you've tried to be the God of your own life? That's why you keep breaking down. And are you finally ready to repent Are you finally ready to surrender? Are you finally ready to serve me and to live for my glory? And then, much to our surprise, the book ends with no answer. But the reason it ends that way is because you're Jonah and so am I. I made a promise on the front end of this series. I'd just like to remind you as we conclude this series. What I said was you would find not only the book of Jonah relatable, uh, or pardon me, the book of Jonah relevant, but the person of Jonah relatable. And if you've been with me through the past seven teachings in this series, I hope you found that promise to be kept. Because if I can just sort of walk through this in terms that we think we understand, I just want to ask you, which one of us can't sympathize with what it's like to be called to go somewhere and do something that makes no sense to us, that violates every one of our instincts? And who can say that we have not run out on God because we were so sure that we had a better idea of how our life was supposed to go? 
And which, which one of us has not found ourselves in the middle of a storm that we know we're in because of decisions that we've made? And I wonder how many people listening to this right now know what it's like to be in a deep, dark, desolate, lonely place where there's nothing left for you to do but face yourself, just like Jonah and that fish. And, and lastly, who doesn't know what it's like to be angry as you fail to understand what God's doing around you and despondent as you failed to understand what he's doing in you? The truth is the book of Jonah ends without resolve because we're all Jonah. Every single one of us is the prodigal prophet. And the final question that this book leaves us with, the final question that this book leaves you with, is who will be the God of your life? Who gets to decide how your life's going to go? Are you going to continue to preserve for yourself the right to decide whether God's will fits into your tiny understanding of how you think your life should go, or... Are you finally ready to do what Jonah does not do in these four chapters? Are you finally ready to surrender with open hands to God? To obey him, whatever he calls you to do, to follow him wherever he calls you to go, and to trust him however he decides to work in you. And the thing about that question is nobody can help us on that test. That's a question that every single one of us needs to answer for ourselves. I want to close today with a personal story. I, I did that last week, and uh, God just put it on my heart that it was, it was appropriate to do that this week. Uh, some of you may have heard me say this before, but when I was 19 years old, an atheist preached me the sermon that changed my life. For those of you that know something about me, uh, you know that I was, I was born and raised in this. Um, my uncle and my father uh, were both pastors. I uh, went to private school my whole life. By the time I graduated, uh, I had probably heard over a thousand sermons. And there's a whole lot of blessings associated with that kind of background. But I think the greatest danger is that you grow up knowing what the right answers are and you know what people want to hear. And so it creates an environment where it's really easy to just play a part and walk around with this kind of skin-deep version of Christianity that has not really transformed you. And, and by the way, that's really the story of Jonah. Jonah's the story of a prophet of God who knew all the right answers it just hadn't come home to him and really transformed him. And so going through the book of Jonah is something that feels very personal for me because I can see so much of myself in this story. Maybe you can too. But, but anyway, when I got out of high school and I got a little bit of freedom, it was pretty clear that the faith that I professed had little to no impact on my life beyond where I might find myself on a Sunday morning. And so God, in his sovereignty, saw fit for me to develop a friendship with this guy named Chris. Chris was really interesting because he was basically me he was just a more honest version of me. Because just like me, Chris had grown up in all of this. And he, he told me about it, how he you know, went to youth group all his life. He went to all those you know, big conferences that were so popular back then. Uh, he even cried over his faith. I mean, he was somebody you look at and say, that's what it's supposed to look like when you know, somebody's on fire for God. But Chris had experienced a lot of suffering in his life. And it caused him to walk out on the faith entirely so that when our paths crossed, Chris was a professing atheist. But Chris was, uh, because of his background and because of his intellect, he had a far better grasp of Scripture than even I did. And so he knew how ridiculous it was for me to claim uh, that God meant so much to me while I lived a life that completely disregarded that. And so one night, I'll, I'll never forget this, one night I was on the phone with Chris. I was sitting on the edge of my bed at my dad's house, 19 years old. I think it was July. 
and uh, and Chris was just hard after me, and uh, you know he was he was trying to get me to this point where I could see just how illogical and hypocritical it was for me to keep going the way that I was going, and I pulled every verse out of context that I knew. Uh, to try to justify the way that I was living. And he had an answer for everything that I said. I, I felt like a boxer that was just being slowly backed into a corner. And finally, Chris bottom-lined the whole thing with one statement. And this is, this is the statement that God used to break through my defenses. This might have been the moment that I got saved. I don't know. But Chris said, he said this, Ryan, if God means that much to you, you'll give it up. Now, I knew what Chris meant when he said that. He wasn't talking about just giving up a behavior or uh, a particular activity. He was talking about giving up control over my life. He was talking about me giving up this ridiculous notion that uh, I knew how my life was supposed to go, uh, that I knew what it, what it would really take to satisfy me, uh, that I was qualified to be the God of my own life. He said, if God means that much to you, you'll give it up. And at the end of that conversation, it had never been more clear to me that there was just two choices to make. I could either decide for the first time in my life that this, this faith that I'd been raised around was finally going to be a faith that I internalized, or I could decide for the first time in my life that God really didn't mean anything to me. More than anything else, I knew I could not continue to live the life that I was living. But before I got off the phone that night, I don't know if I've ever shared this with you all, before I got off the phone that night, I told Chris how impactful our conversation had been. And I actually asked him, I said, Chris, you know, I've heard hundreds of sermons throughout my life. I don't think any of them has been as convicting to me as, as what you've said here. So I actually asked him, I said, why don't you take your own advice? I mean, from, from my viewpoint, Chris understood Christianity more than a lot of people who claim to be Christians. You know what he said to me? just as plainly and as coldly as I've ever heard anybody say anything, he said, because God doesn't mean that much to me. The reason I tell that story is because the book of Jonah is designed to bring you to exactly the same place where you see how clear the choice is. The question Jonah asks you, finally, is very simply, does God mean that much to you? Are you going to hand over total control of your life to him? Repent of all the things that he says you need to repent of. Pursue all the things that he says are worth pursuing. And let what he has said inform how you approach everything that he leads you through. Does God mean that much to you? That's the question that the book of Jonah asks us. And nobody can answer that question for us. Now what I've been doing at the end of my teachings is praying for us. But I actually want to do things a little bit differently today. This is just something that God laid on my heart. If you've been following along in any way through this Jonah series, I'm just going to go out on a limb and guess that God has used this book to bring at least something to the surface in your life that you know he's calling you to deal with, to face, to surrender. Maybe you've been walking with Jesus for a really long time, but you know there are still areas of your life that you've kept from him. Or maybe you're listening to this and you've never made the decision to trust him in the first place. And so whether, whether or not you're ready to trust God for the first time or in a new way, 
I just think there's no better place to do that than right here and right now. And so I want to invite you, if you're ready, to pray and make that decision with me. You can even follow after me and borrow my words. Let's pray. Father, I've been Jonah. I've run out on you. Because I've believed the lie that I know better than you. But I'm done living that way. From this moment forward, I choose to surrender to you. To obey you. Whatever you call me to do. To follow you. Wherever you call me to go. And to trust you. However you decide to work in me. From this moment forward, my life is yours. In the name of Jesus. Amen. If you just prayed that prayer with me, uh, I hope you find a way to let us know. Because we'd love to know what God's doing in your life and how we can help. How we can come alongside you and keep that flame burning. Uh, In conclusion, I just want to thank all of you who stuck with me through the Jonah series. Starting next week, we're going to begin a brand new sermon series looking at the parables of Jesus. And I'm sure that those parables are going to be powerful. They're going to be transformative. They're going to be life-changing just like they were for the people that got to hear them live 2,000 years ago. So I hope to see you here and I hope you bring somebody that you care about. That's it and that's all. Have a great week.